0: to know you how we were unbelievers Uh, committing tons of treason we had a hundred reasons why we wouldn't come to jesus but they were all excuses because our thoughts were useless that's what the dark produces father you already knew this we were foolish and clueless just as ruthless as judas who knew that you would choose to pursue us and move the Well, never mind the leak to my left here. We, we can all look in that section. and get it out of our system. There's dripping from the ceiling. We're good. So it's some condensation and stuff we'll get worked on. So we, we'll get that out of our system here. <laughs> hey, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, two I believe it's on page 1021 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And sorry to do this to you, but if you are able, would you please rise to your feet? And let's read God's word here. I'll read it for us. Revelation chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 7. Again, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you the one in front of you. Uh, Please take it home with you, and we would love for you to read it and get to know this God that we serve. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is what God is telling us through the Bible. and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you And remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated, church. My kids enjoy the movie Home. You may have seen it. And in the movie Home, there's a, there's a knock-knock joke. I need you to play along here with me, all right? Knock-knock. Yeah. Interrupting cow. Yeah. Moo! Isn't that a good one? And in the movie, they do this several times before he catches on. He's like, oh, you're interrupting me, right? <laughs> Sometimes in life, we need to be Interrupted. We got life on cruise control, and we're coasting through, and we need God to shake things up a little bit. Today I'm starting a series on the topic of revival, revival, and it's a series that I'm excited to talk about for a variety of reasons, but at the heart of this idea that's called revival is the fact that God interrupts our lives when he revives us. He he breaks the pattern that we're stuck in in life. And in order to understand revival, let me tell you what it's not. It's not a meeting in a tent necessarily. And if you guys are from the South, and I know some of you are, you're very familiar with big tent revivals. Revival is not something you schedule or you put on the calendar. Like we're going to have revival on Thursday. The reason being is that revival is a sovereign act of God where he pours out his spirit in a fresh way, bringing conviction of sin, repentance, and a new love for him and other people. It is something that God does, and therefore it's something that we pray for. We have a responsibility for this. We can prepare the soil like a gardener breaks up the hard soil after the season, before a new season comes. And that's what I'm praying that this series would be. God beginning to till the hearts of each one of us. Now, I know all of us have different things in life that begin to cause us to coast, and we need to be interrupted. And my my hope and prayer is that this would be that kind of thing. At the same time, I also desire to see God move among us. Church, I, I want us to expect from God these four weeks To to expect him to deepen our love for him. To expose things in our hearts that we need to turn over to him saying, God, forgive me for my sins. God, take this area of my life that I've been clenching onto. When revival happens, God awakens his children from a spiritual slumber. Now I know if you're like me, summertime brings a lot of slumber for me. And I know those of you who are, in, who are students right now, your slumber means waking up like at 2 p.m., right? Yep, yep. But, but there's a kind of spiritual slumber that happens too. We have new rhythms, new paces, and sometimes God isn't at the center of those new rhythms in the summer. Some of us go on vacations, and that's fun and good, and, but God's not at the center of our hearts during that time. And, and so there's this kind of, this malaise that begins to happen, this, this slumber And I believe God wants to awaken in His children an attentive heart. He also wants to arrest the hearts of people who are not His children, to bring about faith in Jesus and and a recognition of our need for Him. So God will awaken and God will arrest when revival happens, and we're praying He would do that as we begin to prepare the landscape. We know revival is needed when sin in our lives isn't addressed, and we kind of overlook it, as we talked about last Sunday. We know it's needed when the gospel, this good news of Jesus, isn't believed, when the Bible isn't preached, when prayer isn't sincere, when repentance is not taught or practiced, when we let the little foxes of our lives begin to linger, those little things that take our attention off Jesus. Or sometimes it's the bulls in the china shops of our lives. So whether you've got foxes or bulls, sometimes those things expose our need for revival. Revival. As I talk about revival during this series, we're going to look at passages in the Bible that point us to this idea of revival. But I'm also going to look at some historical examples of revival. Now, I'm a historian. I don't know if you know that. I love history. I love church history. And so I'm going to give us a picture of what God has done in the past. And you need to know, church, that sometimes when it's been a while since we've seen God do certain things, we begin to doubt whether or not he does it. And we need to be historical in our mindsets. And look at what he's done in the past and say, God, why not now? Yes, in the scripture, but also within all of history. Next week, we'll look at what's called the Protestant Reformation and how God recovered a love for his word and brought revival throughout all of Europe. A few weeks after that, we'll look at this revival that happened in 1857 in our country. You may have never heard of it, called the Businessman's Revival where people took their lunch break in their downtown city, I believe it was New York, and they chose to pray for an hour there. And God brought revival. We'll look at the second great awakening, and today we'll look at the first great awakening, where God used people with the names like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley in our country in the 1730s and 40s, where he brought conviction on people's hearts. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he was a man who was known to be a Puritan. Now, the Puritans in our culture oftentimes get a bad name for being really obnoxious, stuck up, and, and very prideful. And that's, a, that's a, a wrong reputation. The Puritans were men and women who loved Jesus, who preached his word. And because they preached God's call to, to holiness, our culture didn't like that. And now we stereotype them as being prudish. But really, there were people who called for people to turn to Jesus. And Jonathan Edwards was one of those people. And in 1734, in his church, God began to spark a revival. And as we study church history, we see the things that God used to lead revival in a country, in a a city. One of the things that there was a lot of unrest, social unrest. People were discouraged with life. But then in his congregation, something tragic happened. A young man passed away suddenly. He died. And what that did was it caused people to say, man, what's going on with our lives? And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon about the urgency of this life. And people began to say, God, what am I doing here in this life? Not long after that, a woman in town who was known to be very promiscuous was convicted of her sin and turned to Jesus and and became a follower of Jesus. And people were looking like, God, what are you doing here? This is amazing. And the Spirit of God began to pour out on this tiny church in Northampton, Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards, in his preaching, would often use this illustration of honey. He says, you can know that honey is sweet, but until you put it in your mouth, you haven't tasted of its sweetness. He says, in the same way, you can know who God is, but until you taste of his love and truth, you don't really know him. He talks about during his time of revival, he says this, Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship, every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Can you imagine the scene of this revival that God brought in 1734? Edwards talks about how in his time of the the worship gathering, there were times where the service would be interrupted because someone would be weeping so loudly because the conviction of their sin came upon them. And he says, because of that, some people became very skeptical, saying, no, no, God's a God of order. This person's interrupting the service. And he goes on to say, would it be that God interrupted every service with weeping over sin? And he makes it his ambition then to prove that these revivals were a genuine work of the Spirit of God. And he gives five marks of revival, which will then transition us into our passage for this morning. He says, you know it's real that the Spirit of God is at work when, first of all, the name and the fame of Jesus is being lifted up. See, he says Satan doesn't want to make Jesus famous. So if what's happening is making Jesus famous, you could think it's from the Spirit of God. He says, also, secondly, is when the power of Satan is being torn down when the things that Satan wants advanced are no longer being advanced, you know God is at work. Thirdly, he says, when people have a higher regard for the word of God, the Bible. Fourthly, he says, when people are being influenced by the Holy Spirit and can now determine better right from wrong. There's a desire to honor God. And the fifth thing, he says, when you know it's the spirit of God at work, when people have love for each other, and reconcile with each other. He says these are five marks that we know God is at work when he's reviving us. Different times in our lives, family, we see us begin to coast and that slumber begins to set in. And in Revelation 2, there's such a church that fell in that same boat, the church in Ephesus. You see, Revelation 2 and 3 are... Uh, composed of seven letters that Jesus himself, after his resurrection and ascension, tells to the apostle John. Seven letters that John writes to the churches as Jesus assesses where that church is at. And oftentimes when I read that, I think to myself, what would Jesus' letter be to the brook? What would he tell us if he wrote us a letter today? And I'm sure it wouldn't be unlike the letters he wrote today to these seven other churches where he sees things that are doing, doing really well, things that they need to grow in. There's a lot of things that are, doing, that are going perfect, that are going good, keeping it, but there are some areas that you need, to, you need to address. Yes, on the one hand, there might be some spiritual vitality, but on the other hand, revival is needed. I think that's what Jesus would tell the brook in general terms. And as we unpack God's word this morning, don't be guilty of saying, you know what? I wish so-and-so was here to hear what pastor is about to tell them. Because the so-and-so is you, isn't it? It's me. See, God has a word for us because he brings conviction in our hearts before he brings it to the congregation. But that's how revival spreads. It's not secluded in one little corner, but God begins to to spread uh, conviction throughout and the spirit moves and shows us that we need him. Man, it'd be sweet for us in our day to say God poured out his spirit in a special way at the brook in the northwest side of Chicago and began to spread throughout the region. In the book of Revelation chapter two, Jesus writes his letter to the church of Ephesus. Let's take a look at that scripture together. With all the letters he writes to the churches, well, most of them, I should say, he shows them something that they're doing well. Jesus is not like having this real critical eye, saying, man, you ain't doing nothing good, unless that's the truth. But in a lot of these churches, say, hey, there's some things that are going on well here, as I suspect he would say even among us. And as we look in verses 1 through 3 and verse 6, we see that the church in Ephesus has some wonderful things going on. This is where the the word says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, which are the angels of God, we find out earlier, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are an image of the churches. It says Jesus walks among his churches. He's the head of the church, and as a head, he has an invested interest in us. Let's not forget that Jesus is among us right now, as somebody prayed earlier from the stage, And when two or more are gathered, he's with us. And so Jesus, uh, spiritually speaking, is walking among us even now, as he did with Ephesus. He says, hey, I see the things you guys are doing, and and I'm grateful for this. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found, uh, and are not, and have found them to be false. He says, "I see your your works." He says, "You as a church are doing many great things, even from my name. You are busy with ministry, and that is a good thing. You have a lot good going on here. You're working hard." He also says they have patient endurance, which is to imply that there's some opposition they've experienced. There's some adversity in their lives, but as a church, they press forward, and Jesus is commending them for that. He says that they've sniffed out false teachers, those who claim to be apostles, but are not. So this is a church that has a good handle of the scriptures, and they're looking at truth, and they're saying, hey, what these people are teaching isn't legit. So they're theologically grounded as a church. He says in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. There are church that persevered. Jump down to verse 6. He says, Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus is saying, Hey, you guys are, are on the grind, and it's a good thing. You're, 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 you're doing my work. You're standing on truth. You, you have a good moral temperature about you guys. And that's a good thing. But what's fascinating to me is the contrast that happens in verse 4, signified by the word but. See, Jesus says, you're doing all these things good, but, and you know what's coming next. Jesus is about to expose to them why this church who is busy doing God's work is still in need of revival. He says this, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Let let that sit in for a moment. Here's a church busy doing God's work and, and Jesus is saying, you don't love me like you used to. And I ask, well, what are they doing it for then? Why are they doing all the works that they're doing? Why, they are, why are they enduring patiently if it's not because of their love for God and love for others? And yet, I ask that same question to myself and to you today. Why do we do a lot of the things we do in the Christian life? Why are you here this morning? Why do you pray? Why do you do a variety of different things? And the reason being sometimes is because, well, that's what we're supposed to do. I'm here today because it's Sunday morning. Where else should I be but at the church building? Jesus is saying, that's, that's not the right answer, though. Why else are we doing things? And, and when it comes down to it, Jesus is saying, if, my, if your love for me is not driving you, you've lost the love you had at first. And so Jesus says, I have this against you. I hear those words and I'm thinking, man, I remember Romans 8 when God says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But the word if is conditional. But what if God's against us? And this is what Jesus is bringing out here. I've got this against you, he says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned it. Look at that word. It's a strong word of letting go of something you once had. And sure, the church of Ephesus thought, well, how have we abandoned God's love? And when we think about it, let's let's unpack this. From the day of our birth, we are born rebels, hostile to God. Never from the day we were born did we have a thought to love God on our own. If you had an impulse to love God, it's because God put that in you as a display of his love. As John says in 1 John 4, you love, why? Because he first loved us. And so the fact that we could even say, I love God, is a wonderfully supernatural thing that God has done in our hearts, making it all the more grievous to abandon his supernatural gift of love. Jesus is saying, you've abandoned the love you had at first. This past week, I was having Bible study with a friend of mine and several other guys, and one of them was talking about the day he came to know Jesus. Jesus. And I was just filled with just excitement hearing him remember two years ago when Jesus convicted him of sin and he put his faith in him and the excitement that came over him. Some of you might remember the day or the time or the season when you came to know Jesus and the love you had at first. Some of you might be quite young when you came to know Jesus, like I don't remember when I was six, but I do remember loving Jesus. And so, My understanding here is Jesus saying is that there's a childlike love that accompanies a childlike faith. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus, it's him who moved in us and we begin to believe and trust him like a child. God, I believe that you died for me and that my eternity is in your hands. And with that same childlike faith, there's a childlike love. God, thank you for saving me from my sin. And when we first understand this good news, that Jesus died for us, and when we put our faith in him, we could be forgiven, our hearts overflow with love to God. But there's something about growing older in our faith that sometimes causes us to forget that love. Well, what was it that caused the church in Ephesus to forget their love? that first love they had for Jesus. When we look at throughout the Bible, we see a variety of things that cause people to lose their first love. Sometimes it's, it's sin in their lives. Sometimes it's a love for the world. Sometimes it's adversity. Sometimes it's pride, just arrogance in the heart. But what was it for the church in Ephesus? Well, we know it wasn't adversity because they were enduring It wasn't sin in their lives because they had a strong moral compass. It wasn't that they were living in error because they exposed the false teachers. What was it that caused this church in Ephesus to leave their first love? And I want you to ask yourselves that question. God, am I in danger of losing the love I had at first? And if so, why? What we see here seems to be a rather simple answer in verse 5. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. They just stopped living out a life of love. And as I see that, I think they began to drift, a a slow, steady drift. They began to coast. Now, I'm not a a marksman with a bow and arrow or a gun, but we did some archery work as a family this uh, this past June And one thing I learned quickly by shooting a bow and arrow is that if you're off just a slight degree, you're going to miss the target. I mean, it could be a centimeter off to the left or right, up or down. You won't hit the target. And the same is true in life, that sometimes we're living a life to follow Jesus, but we have this steady drift away from our love for God. And we begin to lose it. Begin to lose it. Jesus says here that love and good works go hand to hand. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Arroz and ritualas and gandules. I mean, you just can't do it with otherwise. Love for God and good works come together. You know, during the Great Awakening in New England, there was another preacher named George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was known to be an amazing orator, amazing speaker. And he was one who began to preach out in the, the fields because he was kicked out of churches for his belief in Jesus. Uh, it's a long story about the state church in England at the time. But he says, if I haven't got a pulpit, I'm going to go out there and preach the gospel. And what he began to see was that tens of thousands of people would come to hear him preach in a field. It's craziness. I, I got a picture here of, of George Whitfield preaching in the fields and cover covers not a photography picture, it's a painting. Um, it's 1740, you know. But just imagine a man standing up in the middle of a field and men and women from around towns coming to hear him preach. One man tells a story of, of riding his horse toward Whitfield and seeing the smoke billow in the distance wondering what is going on. Is there a fire? And as he came close, he began to see that there are other people on horses coming to hear him preach. Now, yes, Whitfield was a talented preacher, but it was the Spirit of God that was convicting people that, dro- that drawed them to hear him preach. Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah, says this about Whitfield's preaching. She says, It is wonderful to see him proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. I have seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his words with breathless silence, broken only by occasional half-suppressed sobs. She was saying that these crowds would gather together to hear him preach and to be silent because of what the Spirit of God was doing. And the only noise you'd hear is someone crying because they were broken over their sin. God has to show us our sin before revival happens. He has to show us our sin. Whitfield talked about the leaders in the church is where it starts with. And as I read this as a pastor, my heart is gripped. He says this about the revivals and why things weren't happening beforehand. He says, I am persuaded, he says, the, general, the generality of preachers talk of an unknown, unfelt Christ. And the reason why congregations have been so dead is because dead men preach to them. Cut to the heart, that. But those same words ring true for us whether we're preachers or not. Are we living out a dead faith or a living one, church? Are are we living out a love for God that has awakened and arrested our souls? Or are we going through the motions because we're supposed to? God wants us to be alive, family. He wants your heart entirely alive. He doesn't want us living out a dead faith among dead people expecting living results, but a living faith. Love and works go together. So what we love and know of God then shows in our love for other people. See, we can't love God and be mean-spirited to others. We can't love God and be calloused toward the hurts of people, being apathetic to our sin. We can't love God and not be broken by what we see in our city. We we can't love God and have the world revolve around me. We can't love God and refuse to use the gifts he's given to us because we don't want to. We can't love God and be divisive. See, when, when Jesus visits the church in Ephesus, he said, you've done so many good things here, but you've lost your first love. John says it like this in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation as the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what do we do, church? As God begins to expose your and my heart and showing you ways maybe that you begin to drift in your love for God, or drift in your love for people. What do you do? Well, we do what Jesus told the church in Ephesus to do in verse 5. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Summarizing that three words, he says, remember from where you once were. Remember what God has done in you in the past. Remember this good news of Jesus. And he says, then repent which means to turn away from ways you've sinned. Repent of the ways that your love for God has drifted and your love for others the same. So we remember what God has done. We repent of our sin. And he says, return to the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and return. Jesus goes on to say, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you Repent. Drop down to verse 7 he says he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God as we open this series on revival our prayers that my prayers and our leadership's prayers that we as individuals and as a church would return to Jesus in ways that we've drifted from him how have you drifted how does God want you To return. I'm praying that God begin to till the soil of your heart, preparing your heart for his spirit to be poured out in a sweet and fresh way. Well, when Jonathan Edwards was writing his book about these revivals, he talked about different things we should do when revival does happen, when God begins to work among us. And I want to put this in front of us so we can say, God, when you're working, when you're moving, I want to respond properly. And the first thing he says is don't criticize." what God is doing and he says in particular God begins to start his revivals not with the leaders in the church typically he uses the lay people and he says in his own day there were some pastors who would get mad like hey I'm the preacher I'm supposed to help this thing get started he says don't criticize God's spirit he's going to do it the second thing he says is don't be envious of what God is doing in other people but praise God for what he does in the lives of others He says, go ahead and fast and pray for God to do it in you. And then he says, don't hinder it. Don't stop it. You know, in his own day, revival took place for about a year in his little corner of New England. What grieved Edwards the most was why he perceived revival stopped. He says, from what he can tell, Revival was squashed because of spiritual pride. People became proud about what God was doing, taking credit for things that only God should take credit for. Or they'd be prideful about how they weren't as bad as the other people who needed revival. And church, I pray that we would be those who celebrate when God is at work among us. What we see here from this church of Ephesus is that we can be fervently doing God's work but still need revival because of lack of love. And if love is not cultivated, it will become calloused. It will grow cold. So our response is to remember, to repent, and to return to Jesus. You know, as we close up here, I want us to search ourselves and say, God, I want to be humble here. I want to humbly come before you, God, and ask you to prepare my heart, to show me the drifts, to show me the coasting, and to reel me back in to you. So what I want to do, I want to ask our worship team, would you guys come on up? And as they come up, I want you to search your heart with God right now in your seat. I want you to ask God, what he wants you to take away from this, to to show and reveal the things in your heart. And just as the case with Ephesus, it doesn't mean everything is going wrong, but maybe it means in subtle ways my heart's starting to drift. So let's bow our heads and our hearts together and pray quietly to yourself in these moments.